Chapter Eleven of It Happened in Egypt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It Happened in Egypt by Charles Norris Williamson and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter Eleven, The House of the Crocodile. The letter had evidently been dashed off in a great hurry. It was short and written in French, the language in which Antoun chose to talk with foreigners. Give the bearer two hundred piastres and let him go. Don't try to make him speak. I have promised this. Then quick to Jarvis Pasha and get him to raid the house of the crocodile. Question of hashish. We must be smuggled out when arrests are made, also better to save scandal. Not a word as to whether all were safe or in danger. But I realized that for some reason each instant had been of value, and each instant was of value now. Anthony was one who knew precisely what he wanted and why he wanted it. I obeyed his instructions implicitly. Two hundred piastres went from my pocket into the hand of the withered Arab, and he was allowed to take his departure despite a burst of protest from my companions, who naturally wished the man to be catechized. Once the door had been shut behind his bent blue back, I handed round the letter, which had to be translated for Sir Marcus, who professed contempt for foreign gibberish. Jarvis Pasha is at the head of the police, has been for many years, and is the most interesting man in Egypt after the well-beloved K. Leaving Sir Marcus to go on with his task of consoling Mrs. East, I dashed off in my waiting taxi with the Nubian of the silver earrings. We drove to the Governorat, a big house in a square near what was once known as the Guarded City, the very heart and birth spot of Cairo. Masril Kahira, the marshal, founded under the planet Mars. I scribbled a line to Jarvis Pasha and sent it to him in an envelope with my card. This combination opened doors for me, and three minutes later I was shaking hands with a tall, thin, white-moustached, hawk-featured Englishman who looked all muscle and bones and brain. Jarvis Pasha, being in the secret of Antoun's identity and business in Cairo, simplified the explanation, and did away with the necessity for a preface. All I had to tell was the brief story of the girl's disappearance with Better El Gemeli, and Fenton's following them into space. Then how word had come after fourteen hours. The house of the crocodile, Jarvis Pasha said when he had taken and read the letter. Hm. Do you know anything about that house? I know the old stories connected with it. I answered, if its reputation today is as sinister as ever, not at all. Figuratively speaking, it has been whitewashed. It's become a showplace, a monument historique. This is interesting information which Fenton sends, but if it came from anyone else, I should say he had dreamed it. He may be giving us the chance of an important coup. Wait a few minutes, and I'll have this thing attended to, Lord Ernest. But you look upset. Is it that you haven't had lunch, or are you worrying about the ladies? Both, I answered with a sickly grin. Not that I mind about lunch. I couldn't have eaten if I'd had the time. You haven't as much belief as I have in your friend, remarked Jarvis Pasha, if you think he'd let them come to harm. They're all in the same box, apparently. I excused my lack of faith. Trust Fenton, said the head of police. He was sharp enough to find the needles in the haystack, and he's smart enough and strong enough to take care of them when they're found. On this, Jarvis Pasha went out and left me to my reflections, which rushed to the house of the crocodile. Everyone who has read or heard stories of native Cairo knows the house of the crocodile in the street of the sisters, 
and how, in the later days of Muhammad Ali, people scarcely dared to name it aloud. The tiger, Deferdar, Ahmed, built it, for that beautiful tigress, Princess Zohra, favorite daughter of Muhammad Ali, who married her off to the fierce soldier when she became too troublesome at home. Zohra had loved a young Irish officer who was murdered for her sake, and had no true affection to give Ahmed or any other. She hated all men because of the murderer, her own nephew, and vowed that since her love had cost the life of the one who had her heart, others who dared to love her must pay the same price. When Ahmed died suddenly, soon after the wedding, those who had heard of Zohra's vow, and there were many in the harems, whispered poison. Never again did the princess drive out to see the women she knew, and those who had been her friends were sent away from the door of the dead Ahmed's palace, over which he had suspended, for luck, a huge crocodile killed in the far south. But Zora was beautiful, with strange eyes which drew love, whether she asked for it or not, and sometimes a small lattice would open in a bay of one of those windows of wooden lace, whose carving was known as Meshirbiya work, because Sherib, or Sherbet, used to be placed there to cool. Out of the lattice would look a wonderful face, as thinly veiled as the moon by a mist, and then it would vanish so quickly that a man who saw half believed that he had dreamed. But the eyes of the dream seemed to call, and could not be forgotten, any more than the song of a siren can cease to echo in ears which have once heard. After the beginning of Zora's widowhood, the noblest and handsomest youths of Cairo began mysteriously to disappear. They would be well and happy one day, and the next they would be gone from the places that knew them. By and by their bodies would be found in a canal, always the same canal, near the water-gate of the house of the crocodile. Then the vow of the princess was remembered, but there was no English rule in those days, and the police shut their ears and eyes where a daughter of Muhammad Ali was concerned. Mothers and sisters of handsome young men shuddered and begged those they loved never to pass through the dark street of the sisters, Sharia el Banat, where the crocodile grinned over the door, and the vision of a face looked down from a latticed window. The women thought of the water-gate at the back of the house. The little children, who had heard secret words spoken, thought of the crocodile, and ran crying past the house. But the handsome young men thought only of the face, and each one said to himself, She will not make me pay the price. Still, as years went on, bodies were seen in the water from time to time, with a tiny purple spot over the heart, to show the curious that death had not come from drowning. And some, who looked for lost ones, could not reclaim them from the canal, for bodies were not always found. As time passed, it seemed to people who hurried by the house in the narrow street that the crocodile grew larger and larger. And it was said that it had been fed on the children of men Tiger Ahmed had murdered in Senar. None dared to say what they believed of Princess Zora, but when, after a long imprisonment by her nephew Abbas, in the house of the crocodile, she escaped to Constantinople, nobody would live where she had lived, and the palace fell almost into ruin. This was the story of the house where Monty Gilder and Rachel Guest and Anthony Fenton were now. I had heard it talked about by our Arab servant when I was a child, and had never forgotten, though scarcely since then had I thought of the tale, until the remembered name and the horrors attached jumped into my mind on reading Anthony's letter. What happened in the house of the crocodile since Zora's day I did not know, but because of the old story it seemed more sinister that my friends should appeal for help from that place than from any other in Cairo. I was not left long alone. 
Five minutes after Jarvis Pasha went out of the room to arrange things according to Fenton's request, he sent me a man with whiskey and soda and biscuits. I drank gladly and ate rather than seem ungrateful. But there was a lump in my throat which would stick there, I knew, until those three were away from the house of the crocodile. I was still crumbling biscuits when Jarvis Pasha came briskly back. Well, he asked, are you braced up now? If you'd like to be in this business, you can. I'm sending a white superintendent with my police to raid the house, on the strength of Fenton's letter to you, though until now the place hasn't been suspected. As I said, it's been a show-house for some years, ground floor and first story in repair, just as in Zora's day, upper floors ruinous, and the public not admitted there. If anything queer's going on, it must be in the forbidden part, and the caretaker is mixed up in the show. A pity you felt bound to let Fenton's messenger off. You can go with my superintendent, Allen, and reach your friends as soon as my men do. Allen has instructions to let Fenton and the ladies, if they're found there, slip away, and it's best for you to be on the spot to stave mistakes and identification. Also, I've ordered a closed arabia to wait for you, as near as possible. My men will show you where. You'll know it, for certain, by a red camellia on the Arab driver's European coat. And, by the way, take this browning in case of an attack, which I don't anticipate. As Jarvis Pasha spoke, he opened the door and summoned in a brown young Britisher wearing the tarbouche, which denotes jippy officialdom. Evidently Alan was prepared for me as I for him, and we started off together on foot, for it seemed that our destination was not far away. We walked swiftly through the crowded musky, once the fashionable part of Cairo, before the tide flowed to the modern Ismaela quarter, and after a few intricate turnings plunged into a still, twilight region. The streets through which we passed were so narrow, and the old houses so far overhung the path, that the strip of sky at the top of the dark canyon was a mere line of inlaid blue enamel flecked with gold. The splendid Masherbia windows thrust out toward each other big and little bays, across the ten or twelve feet of distance which parted them, as if to whisper secrets, yet the delicate wooden carvings skilfully hid all that they wished to hide, and only suggested their secrets. "'Now we'll soon be coming to the house of the crocodile,' said Alan. "'By Jove, it's a joke on us, and a smart one, if it's been turned into a hashish den under our noses. But it must be something new, or we should have got into it. The chief thinks already he can guess who's at the bottom of the business, and who has put the money up, a certain bay in whose service the caretaker was, a rich old Johnny, very old-fashioned, who lives not far off in a beautiful house of the best Kyrene period. He's keen on antiques, and has been of service to the government in several ways, though he's a reformed smuggler, and his only son, dead now, was a hopeless hashash. That's what they call slaves of the hashish habit. I suppose you've read all about the hashishain of the crusaders' days, whom we speak of assassins? Well, ever since then, the Hashashain have had a bad reputation. But this old man I speak of has been pitied for his son's failings, which he pretends to think a judgment for his own past repented sins. Now, Lord Ernest, saunter, please, as if you were a tourist in my charge, admiring the old doorways. Two native workmen appeared in front of us, with pickaxes on their shoulders. Stopping, they threw down their tools. One produced a cord which he stretched across the street from house to house, and in the middle he hung a small red flag. Then the pair began to pick in a leisurely way at the surface of the road, 
and before we reached the barrier an Arab policeman stationed himself by the cord. Glancing ahead, I saw that the farther end of the narrow lane was blocked in the same manner. "'This is one trick we have of doing our work quietly,' said Alan. "'It always answers pretty well.' I said nothing, but used my eyes. Coming from nowhere, apparently, there were twenty men in the street. A few had crowbars in their hands. Others, native policemen, carried the canes with which they controlled the movements of the people. From the shadowed doorway of large house a native sergeant of police stepped out as we approached, and saluted Alan. Over the closed door a large, dryly smiling, ancient crocodile hung. "'Have our men come and taken their places?' asked my companion in Arabic. "'Yes, Effendi,' the sergeant answered. "'All has been done according to order.' The back entrance, which was the water-gate before the old canal was filled up, is surrounded, and the adjoining houses, with which some communication may have been established, are watched. Not a rat could have crawled out since we came, nor could one have gone in. Today is the feast of a saint, and these people have their excuse not to open the house to visitors, for so it is with other show-places. Look, it is written up that until to-morrow there is no admission. As the man pointed to a card hanging from a hook, he and Alan smiled at the cleverness of this pretext for closing the door. In English, French, and Arabic, the reason was announced in neat print. Probably this was not the first time the same excuse had been used in the same way. "'They must have taken alarm at something, and thought they were being watched,' Alan said to me. "'That's why they've sported their oak. I expect we shall make a haul, as, for everybody's sake concerned, they wouldn't dare let their clients out, to fall into a trap.' "'Yes, that's why, or else—' He stopped, and I did not ask him to go on, for I knew that to ask would be useless. Yet I guessed what he had meant to say, and why he had stopped. He didn't wish to alarm me, but it was in his mind that the house had been closed because of something planned to happen inside, and that something might be connected with my friends. We should soon know. My first thought was that we were to get through the door— by breaking it in, or by forcing those on the other side to open for us. In an instant, however, I realized that my idea was absurd. It would take an hour to batter down that thick slab of old cedarwood, and Alan had said that he wanted to do things quietly. No, the brown sergeant was not here to open the door, but to see that it did not open unless for our benefit. Two of Alan's men were unfolding a curious ladder like a lattice, which they made secure with screws when they had stretched it to full length. Then up it went to one of the beautiful Mushurbiya windows which, on the level of the story above the ground floor, bayed graciously, overhanging the street. One man standing below held the ladder firmly in place, while another, small and lithe as a monkey, and enjoying the task as a monkey might, ran up to the top that leaned against the window. Evidently he was a skilled worker, for before I knew what he would be at, he had, with some small, sharp instrument, prized out without breaking it, one of the sections of carved lattice. This he tossed lightly down to a man who caught it, and as he and four others after him slipped through the opening, the sergeant knocked on the closed door, under the swinging form of the crocodile. Nobody answered. But three minutes passed, and then suddenly there was the sound of a falling bar, and a very old, very dark man, with a white turban and a white beard, peeped out. "'Thieves!' he cried in Arabic. "'Thieves break in at the window!' He was making the best of a bad business, I guessed, and hoped somehow to justify himself to the police. But though he was grey with fright, he forgot to look surprised. 
My Arabic was not equal to the strain of catching all the gabble that followed, the old man protesting that it was right to close the house to-day, that if it were the police and not thieves who broke in, it was unjust, it was cruel, and his son Mansour, the caretaker, would appeal to all the powers. Before he had come to the end of his first breath, he was hushed and handcuffed, and hustled away, and another man sprang forward from behind the angle of a screen-wall inside the entrance. He was young, and looked strong and fierce as an angry giant, but at sight of Alan and the rest of us, he stopped as if we had shot him. Perhaps he had not expected so many. In any case, he saw that there was nothing he could hope to gain by violence or bluster. All he could do was to protest, as his father had done, that this visit was a violation of his right to close the house on a holiday. "'Don't be a fool, Mansour,' said Alan, who evidently knew him. "'You understand very well that isn't why we are here. You've got a hashish den upstairs, above the public showrooms. A nice trick you thought you'd played us, but you see you didn't bring it off.' By this time we were inside the house, having thrust the caretaker in again, and passing the three tortuous screen-walls of the entrance into a courtyard. Several young Arabs dressed as servants stood there, large-eyed, and stricken at sight of their giant master held by four policemen. But there was not a sign of our men who had crawled through the window, and I was impatient to go where they had gone. There was no sound of scuffling, no sound at all, except the crying of some startled doves, and Mansour's voice, swearing by the Prophet's sacred beard that if anything were wrong he was not the one to blame. There were those above him who must be obeyed, or he and all that were his would be put out of life, but I cared too little for him, or what might become of him and his, to listen much. I looked up and saw, at the left of the courtyard, with its several closed doors, a short flight of steps with a mounting block and a doorway leading to a winding staircase. Round the court went a gallery, supported with old marble pillars, and underneath on one side was a large recess, the taktaboche, raised slightly above the level of the courtyard, and having a row of wooden benches round its three walls. Here the caretaker and his male relatives and friends had evidently been smoking their nargilas and drinking coffee. Our arrival had disturbed them in the midst. Suddenly, into the frightened mourning of the doves, broke a sharp sound of cracking wood. "'Come along,' cried Alan. "'There will be past the barrier in a minute.' and leaving Mansour and the others to be dealt with by subordinates, he led the way up the steep stairs at a run. We did not stop at the first story, the show part of the house of the crocodile, but catching a glimpse of a latticed balcony off the landing, all lovely mushurbiyah work, and a great room of Persian-tiled walls and colored marble floor beyond, we dashed up another flight of stairs to the story above. These stairs were of common wood, and somewhat out of repair. At the top was a door of carved cedar wood like those below, but rough in execution, faded, and with here and there a star point or triangle of the pattern missing, leaving a hole in the thick wood. On this door was nailed a large card with the notice written English, French, and Arabic, forbidden to the public. What a grand idea to install a hashish den here, I could not help thinking, as I followed at Alan's heels to the head of the stairs where two of his men worked with crowbars to prise open that theatrically dilapidated door. Behind the pair who worked there were the others who had entered by the window below, and hardly had we taken our places in the strange queue, when, with a loud groan, the door gave way. 
the couple in front almost fell into a dark passage on the other side, and my heart leaped, for I half expected to see them driven back upon us by an attack with knives or pistols. But the dim vista seemed to hold only silence and emptiness, as I peered over men's shoulders, and as we crowded in, Alan pushing ahead to take the lead, nothing stirred. The passage was but a gallery, like that below, but instead of being open it was closed in with lattice of musherbia work, so that, though those within could look through, it was a secret for those outside, as if it had been enclosed by a solid wall. The darkness was patterned with light, like ebony thinly inlaid with gold, for the afternoon sunlight trickled into the delicate loopholes of the carvings, and we began to see what enterprise had been made of this ruinous upper story. The floor had been dilapidated and unsafe, but new boards had been placed over it, covered with Egyptian-made matting and rugs to deaden sound and give an appearance of comfort. We walked quickly along to the end, where this closed gallery turned at right angles, and there found another door, new and rough, evidently but lately put up. It was not so strong as the old one, and it yielded in a few minutes to the furious industry of our men with their crowbars. They lifted the door from its broken hinges, leaning it against a wall, and as we passed through, an Arab pulled aside a thick curtain which filled in a doorway. He was evidently a servant, and seeing the police, showed no sign of surprise, but only of a most humble resignation which disclaimed responsibility and begged for mercy. In silence the man was taken into custody, and Alan and I, with three of the four policemen, passed into the region behind the portiere. There all was dusk, save for the faint light sifting down from a carved wooden dome in the ceiling, partly curtained, and a dark lantern flashed out a long revealing ray. The men ran to pull back heavy cloth hangings which entirely covered the latticed windows, and would allow lamps to be lit at night without being seen from the street or courtyard. Instantly sunshine pierced the carved interstices, and let us see what Enterprise had done for his clients. We were in the antechamber of a long, beautiful room. The old, colored marble of the Durka, the lower level of floor nearest the entrance, had been repaired with new. The dilapidations of a fountain were almost hidden by pink azaleas in pots. The Liwan on the next level had a good rug or two, and the Diwan, at the farthest and highest end, was furnished with red-covered mattresses and pillows. The low-wall benches of marble were set here and there with glass bowls of roses and syringa, and tiny cedarwood cupboards high in the tiled walls were open to show coffee-cups, tobacco-jars, and pipes made of coconut shells with long stems of cane. Four men, who had apparently been lying on the mattresses, stood up and faced us, not fiercely, but with something of the attendant's resignation. Two were in European clothes, with the inevitable tarbouche, and two, equally well-dressed, were old-fashioned and picturesque in the long silk gown and turban style, which Antoun and other lovers of the ancient ways affected. They were of the Effendi class, and might be merchants or professional persons. A turbaned man with a black beard Alan knew, and greeted in Arabic, Hussein Effendi, who would have thought to see you here? Why not? answered the other, with a melancholy smile and a shrug of the shoulders, there is no harm, really, but only in the eyes of the English. We are caught, and we cannot complain, for we have had true delight, and we have known, since the alarm came last night, that we may have to pay for our pleasure. So you had the alarm last night? 
said Alan, looking as if there were nothing surprising or puzzling in that. Yes, why should not we admit it now? Word came that a watch had been set outside, both back and front, and none of us dared to leave the house. We consented to be locked in, though there is one in another room who wished to get out and run the risk. That was not permitted, for the sake of others, and to prevent him from taking his own way in spite of prudence, we let ourselves be shut in, with only one attendant who took through the holes in the door such little food as we needed. We had begun to hope that it had been a false alarm, or, since no inquiries seemed to have been made below, that the watchers had gone and would not come again. We planned, as soon as night fell, to go to our homes, but it was not to be. And if any are to blame, it is not those who come to take pleasures provided for them, but rather they who cheat the coast-guard of the swift-running camels, and bring what is forbidden into Egypt. "'The blame will be rightfully apportioned,' said Alan. "'Meanwhile I am sorry to say, Hussein Effendi, that you and those in your company are subject to the law. I must leave you now, and go farther to see what others we will have to deal with.' The four Effendis were politely left in charge of two policemen, who would have been equal to twice their number, and our one remaining man went on with Alan and me. Your friends, and perhaps two or three who can afford to pay big prices, will have had their smoke in private rooms, Alan explained. We can guess who it was who wanted to break out. There are probably no more doors, only curtains, so we shall have no trouble. But don't forget that, if anything unexpected should happen, you have a pistol. Of course you understand that it could be used only in an extreme case. A curtain doorway led out from the diwan into a small anteroom, and there, on the floor, sat better El Gamely, the picture of dejection. Had I raised my voice in the next room, he would perhaps have ventured in to see what I could do to help him, for now, at sight of me, he scrambled up in shame-faced eagerness. "'Oh, my lordship,' he began to cackle, "'praise be to Allah you are come. I was persuaded to bring the young ladies here. They would make me do it. Yes, sir, it is not my fault. They pay me. I have to obey.' Then we get caught, like we was some rats. No fair to punish me. The lady's all right. No harm come, except a little sick. If no harm has come, that's not due to you, but to a very different man, as you well know, I said. And as I spoke, the man I had in my mind appeared before my eyes. Hello! I exclaimed, joyously. Anthony's eyes and Alan's met, but I could not tell if they knew each other, nor could I ask then. It was enough for Alan in any case, however, that this magnificent Haji was one of the friends for whom I searched. He turned to better. You brought two ladies here, I understand, he said quickly and sharply. Then you must have acquaintance with the place. For good reasons, which have nothing to do with you, I shall not arrest you, but you will have to report at the governorat inside the hour, or you will regret it. Do you know the way out the back of the house? I do, gracious one, better responded with a business-like promptness. Then take these gentlemen and the ladies, whom I do not need to see, out by that door, and you will all be allowed to go, because my men who are there have seen Lord Ernest Borrow, and they have my instructions. We waited for no more, but followed Anthony, who made a dash through the further room and into another. There, on a mattress, crouched two forlorn figures, veiled as if in haste, and muffled in black satin haberas, such as Turkish ladies wear in the street. "'Lord Ernest, oh, how glad I am!' cried one of these creatures, while the other, less vital or more miserable, whimpered and gurgled a little behind her veil. "'Come along, quick!' I said, and they came. 
better led the way, thankful to show himself of use. Anthony followed as if to protect or screen the girls from sight. I brought up the rear, and so, scuttling through a rabbit warren of little unfurnished dilapidated rooms, we found a narrow side staircase and tumbled down it, anyhow, in dust and dimness. Then two more staircases, and we were in a cellar which looked as if it might once have been used as a prison. Up again, and rattling at a chained door. Then out, into light and air, into the midst of a group, for which an instant closed threateningly around us. But the sergeant I had seen was among the alert brown men. A glance, a gesture, and we were allowed to pass, a youth running with us to show us the promised carriage and the Arab driver with the red camellia. So it was over, this adventure. Yet was it over? That remained to be seen, and remained also to see what it meant, if indeed there were a meaning underneath the surface. End of chapter 11